chapter 12. Please stand for the reading of God's word. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat, roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire, with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt." The word of God for the people of God. Kristen, thank you so much. I, before we get started, I want to just acknowledge some guests here. If you're with Covenant Seminary in the church planning class, would you stand, please, and remain standing? Um, these uh, people have come from St. Louis to think about church planting and to think about it and uh, uh, to learn about it from, from a lot of church planters here in town. And I want to acknowledge especially Phil Douglas. Phil's been associated with the seminary for a long, long time. Uh, the Covenant Seminary is the PCA denominational semin uh, semin seminary. And uh, Phil, we're delighted to have you and students and families. We're so glad you guys came. We look forward to next year and we pray that the Lord would really bless you guys as, as you think about church planning. You may be seated. So, um, I missed you last week. I understand we ended up on Joseph's bones. So I want to sort of catch you up on last week, and then we'll move right into where we're going with the Passover today. So, uh, and I do want to thank David Cassidy, a pastor down in Franklin, who would take the pulpit while I was gone. Incidentally, I was out in the middle of nowhere. We were uh, near the Grand Canyon, uh, uh, driving uh, UTVs, if that means anything to you. Basically, it's uh, uh, vehicles for irresponsible adults who want to uh, get close to death. And let me just tell you, it was rather intense, and I'm so glad to be back here in one piece. And the, the key phrase is, in one piece, to be with you. So um, 
I did miss you. So let's think about, uh, let's continue to think about the story here. And let me set this up by saying this. Author Norman McLean said this. He said, the nearest anyone can come to finding himself or herself at any given age is to find a story that somehow tells him about himself. And so what the Bible claims... No matter what your relationship to the Bible is, if you've never read it before, if it's been a book that you're familiar with all your life, what the Bible claims is to be the one and true larger story that all humanity can find their individual context in. And that's exactly why we are, as a church, going through the story. Because as you begin to understand the unfolding story of God, you'll be able to see your place in it. And then play your part with the resources that God gives you. That's why it's so important to see how the Bible unfolds week in and week out. And that's why it's so important to be here week in and week out. Now, last week we talked about the life of Joseph. Now, if you'll remember, Genesis chapter 12, God called a man named Abram to himself to a promised land. He promised to to be a great nation. He said, through your descendants you will be a blessing. He said that you will have a land. And so Abram stepped out in faith and began to follow the Lord. And Abram's descendants, one of them was a man named Joseph. Joseph ended up in the land of Egypt Egypt, because of extremely difficult circumstances, in fact, betrayal by his brothers. While in Egypt, God was good to Joseph. God had not forgotten him. Consequently, what happened with Joseph is he rose to prominence and eventually became second in command and actually saved the people of Egypt through an incredible famine. At the same time, the Lord was working, and ultimately Joseph's family migrated from the land of promise to Egypt. And so Joseph, surrounded by his brothers, knowing the promises of God, And knowing that they would not end up in Egypt, Joseph knew that they would end up in the promised land. And so as he was taking his dying breaths, he was asking his brothers to promise to take his bones out of the land of Egypt and back to the land of promise. And that's why he asked them to do it, because he knew that they would be exiting. Now what we're going to see this week is this, and let me I'm going to walk you all the way up to Passover. So here's how God delivered his people from the land of Egypt. Over the years, in fact, to be exact, probably about 400 years, the Hebrew people began to reproduce. Now, they were prospering in Egypt. And as they reproduced, they, the population increased more and more and more. The pharaohs initially, the leaders of Egypt, were initially very, very um, uh, delighted to have the Hebrews uh, among the Egyptians. But as the population of Hebrews increased, some of the newer pharaohs who had forgotten Joseph began to see the Hebrew people and their increasing population as a threat And so pharaohs began to enslave the Hebrew people. And after a period of slavery, the Hebrew people cried out to the living God. And so what God did is he raised up a deliverer. And that deliverer is a man named Moses. Now here's a brief story of the the early life of Moses. So 
In order to control the Hebrew population, the pharaohs instituted a policy of genocide for baby boys, Hebrew baby boys. They were to be killed. One of the Hebrew families, loving their baby boy, decided that they would hide that boy, and they did until the boy got too big. Ultimately, they took this little boy, and they put him in a, this little baby boy, and they put him in a basket, and they put him among the reeds, uh, the, the reeds along the, river, uh, the Nile River. They did that because they knew that Pharaoh's daughter bathed there in a discreet place, they knew that she bathed there and they hoped that she would pick up this little baby boy, have mercy on him, and who knows what would happen at that point. Well, in fact, that's exactly how it unfolded. This little boy in this basket was discovered by Pharaoh's daughter. She said, this is one of the Hebrew children. I'll take him and raise him. Well, strategically, this little baby boy's older sister was right there at the bank observing all this. She ran up to Pharaoh's daughter and said, Would you like me to get a Hebrew to nurse the child for you? And of course, the daughter said yes. And so Miriam, Moses' older sister, went and got Moses' mother to nurse Moses the baby. Think about that. You guys, did you ever think about how God in the little details restored the mom to the child? Can you imagine what that was like for her? God caring for her. And so Moses ended up being raised in Pharaoh's court. Now as Moses got older, he would go out and be among the people. And one day he saw an Egyptian, an Egyptian kill a Hebrew. And so he killed the Egyptian in a rage. He took the Egyptian's body, he buried it in the sand. The next day, he saw two Hebrews fighting. He sought to intervene between them and said, why are you fighting your brothers? And one of the Hebrews said to him, are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Moses realized that his crime of murder had been exposed and who knows what would have happened. And so he, so he fled east into the desert. He ultimately married there and he became a shepherd. And he was tending a flock out in the middle of nowhere. And guess who shows up? You guys, I want to tell you something. God is faithful. And when you think you're out in the middle of nowhere, God will show up. And if you've been in the middle of nowhere, and you've experienced God showing up, it is really, really powerful. Because God can see you no matter where you are. And so God appears in a burning bush. Why in a burning bush? Who knows? I'm sure to draw attention to himself. It was highly unusual. Moses, in fact, the Bible records, Moses, seeing this strange sight, went over to see what was happening. So he steps over to this burning bush and God speaks to him. And God calls Moses to be the deliverer of the Hebrew people from the land of slavery. Moses says this, and I want you all to listen. Moses says, who am I to do this? And do you know how God answers? He says, it's not who you are. It's who I am. You guys, do you realize that? A life surrendered to the living God is not a life that you've got to live on your own. It's a life that you've surrendered to God who can do more than we could ever ask or imagine. Jesus puts it like this in John 10.10. 10. I call it the 10.10 10 life. A life more than you ever dare dream. More than you could ever dream about. And so, 
God says, it's what I'm going to do. And ultimately, he raises up Moses, and he sends Moses with his brother Aaron into Pharaoh's court to challenge Pharaoh to let the Hebrew people go and worship the living God. Now, Pharaoh, in rebellion against God, says no. And so what God does in his sovereign plan, he he brings ten plagues. And if you're familiar with the biblical story, you know this. If you're not, he brings ten massive plagues. And if you read the account, what you'll see is any one of these plagues, surely, surely it would have brought Pharaoh to his senses. And yet it didn't. Because Pharaoh's heart was hard against the living God. And so there were ten plagues that God brought on the the land of Egypt to show Pharaoh that in fact, The God of Hebrews was the Lord. And that Pharaoh needed to release the Hebrew people to worship their God. And so the plagues come, the plagues go. Pharaoh promises to release the people. Moses prays. God stops the plague. Pharaoh hardens his heart. And we're on to the next plague. Over and over and over again, you can read the account, as I'm sure many of you have in the story. And finally, we come to the tenth plague, where we pick pick up the story, and it's extremely profound. Now, let me tell you why I chose this passage for this chapter. The Passover story points to something much larger that God is doing. Much more profound. It's such a beautiful foreshadowing in the larger story of the true hero. And that's what we'll see today. So let's jump in. Look at verses 1 through 3 with me first. And I entitled this first point, A Brand New Life. Now notice how it starts out in verse 1. This month for you is to be the first month. This is the Lord speaking to the people. Now hear what God is saying. This month for you is to be the first month. In other words, what is happening in the Passover is so significant that we're going to start the calendar on this day. That's how significant it is. And I've entitled it A Brand New Life because basically what the Lord is doing for the the Hebrew people is to give them a brand new life. He's raising them up as a nation. Genesis 12, just like he promised Abram, I will make you a great nation. You guys, over and over and over again, those of you in the room who are not familiar with the Bible and you're thinking about the Christian faith, here's what you've got to see. The Bible is filled with promises that God makes And that God keeps. And what you've got to decide is, do you believe that God keeps his promises? And what are those promises? The most significant promise God makes is the promise of salvation. And the question for you is, do you believe God promises salvation? If so, how do we enter into that? And so over and over and over again, what you see here, the, this month shall be for you the first month. What the, what the Lord is telling them is, I'm going to raise you into a great nation. We're doing something brand new. I'm giving you a brand new life. Listen to what one commentator said about this. A liberated people 
must evolve and stress its own distinctive and autonomous culture. A uniform calendar is a powerful instrument of societal, cultural, and religious cohesion. In other words, they were gaining an identity. God was saying, I'm doing something new. I'm giving you a brand new life. And so we're going to start your calendar on this day so you remember it. You guys, let me ask you a quick question. Do you know the origin? How many of you do uh, New Year's resolutions? Okay. You shouldn't have raised your hand. <laughs> I'm just I'm totally teasing you. Let me, do you know the origin of New Year's resolutions? It comes from 4,000 years ago. In fact, it comes from Babylonia, where there was a 12-day religious festival that the Babylonians would have. And during that festival, the people would make commitments to their gods. They would make promises to their gods. And they would also return any debts they owed to their gods. And they would also try to make good on any commitments that they'd broken to their gods. And they'd always do it at the first of this festival. They would make these resolutions. And that's the origin of the New Year's resolution. And oh, by the way, if they broke the resolutions, they'd lose the favor of their God and they'd endure a punishment of a God. Now think about it for just a second. Because so many religions and the misunderstanding of the Christian religion is the whole idea of a new, new, uh, new resolution. We make resolutions and we hope if we're faithful to them, God will be favorable to us. That couldn't be further from the gospel truth. The truth of the matter is, is that God's faithful to us even when we're not faithful to Him. And God is rock solid in keeping His promises. And He promises the Israelites a whole new life. Now, as the story unfolds, do you know how this promise manifests itself? It manifests itself in our individual lives. When a man named Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Men and women, do you understand the Christian religion promises that he will give you a new heart? God, in Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. You guys, have any of you gotten such in despair of your life and how you live your life that you've just ended up in the pits? That happened to me yesterday. Do you realize the promise of the gospel is a new heart and you don't have to do anything to get it? No resolution. Just desperation. And he'll take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith. Not in myself. You guys, how many of us grew up thinking that it's up to us? I'm on my own, and I've got to go it alone. That's what I learned when my father died early. I'm on my own, and I've got to make it happen myself. How many of you have been raised thinking you've got to make it happen yourself? Let me tell you something. You don't have to make the Christian life happen. It can be given to you as a gift by faith. It's a brand new life. Now look at verse 3. God says, tell the whole community of Israel. Now what's God doing here? You know what he's doing? He's turning the Hebrew people into a nation. 
He's giving them a corporate identity. They're God's chosen people. He's about to deliver them from the land of slavery and calling them to the promised land and setting them apart for a great work. And God does the same thing in the Newer Testament when he gives his people the corporate identity. We, Weston Community Church, is part of a much larger corporate identity of the people of God known as the body of Christ, the church. One of Jesus' earliest followers, Peter, said, Jesus, you are the Christ. And Jesus stopped and said, do you understand what's happening? What you've just said, your faith in me is the very rock I'm going to build the church on because I'm going to build the church on me. Your identity is the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. And men and women, that's why it's so important that we function as the body of Christ. Because it costs Jesus so much to give us our identity. And he, Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. Our new life, men and women, we've got a brand new life. We've got a whole new identity as the bride of Christ. And all this comes about because God promises it. And these people took God at his word. Look at verses 3 through 10. It's all by faith in God. Now, the instructions that we're going to go through briefly here in 3 through 10 have a twofold purpose. First, to call the people of God, to trust God to save them. And then secondly, he gave them this Passover meal to help them remember what God had done in the past and to thank him for his wonderful salvation. Now, notice the precise instructions, and let's just walk through it real briefly. First, a man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. I can't, I've just got to stop here. Men, you, if you are married and raising a family, look at my eyeballs. Okay, can you see them? You are called to be the spiritual leader in your family. Be free. That does not mean you have to know more than your wife does about the Bible. I know more men who get intimidated by that. What it means is that you're called to seek Jesus and take her by the hand and present her as holy and blameless before the Lord. And that means to take her by the hand and seek Jesus together. What does it look like? It means it may mean praying together. I would say it does. Regular church attendance. Encouraging each other. There are numbers of ways that you can lead spiritually. But it's taking the initiative to rest in Christ as a family. And so the man here is called to take the lamb, one for each household. And the lamb is to be eaten by all, every person. And look at verse 4, to determine the exact amount of lamb that's needed for everyone. Because everyone needed to have some of this lamb. Teaching them that the Passover meal is sufficient for something. Look at verse 5. This lamb or this goat is to be young, male, and perfect. Males, because the females were needed for breeding and milk, perfect. Imperfect animals, you know, if they had maybe a lame foot or uh, they were off, had some sort of 
just some sort of defect. Their meat was just as good. So obviously the perfection demanded here was pointing to something that was more spiritual in nature. In, in nature. And really ultimately what you see with that is a relationship with a holy and perfect God is a relationship that demands perfection. In fact, let me tell you this. In Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus was really rocking the house with a great sermon. I mean, he was preaching his guts out by the power of the Holy Spirit. He paused and he said this. You all ready? He said this. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's a showstopper, isn't it? I don't think anybody just breathed. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's incredibly powerful. And the question you may be asking is this. How on earth can an animal, a lamb here, provide the perfection needed to approach a holy God? Guess what? It can't. And that's the whole point. It can't. There's got to be something else. And that's why this meal, Passover, points to something larger. And that larger story is the fact that God's going to provide a substitute who would provide perfection for the participants in the Passover meal if they would trust the living God. And guess what? Jesus was young, male, and perfect. This Passover is pointing ultimately to the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus. Absolutely. Look at verse 6. The animals are chosen four days in advance. Why? Because they needed to prepare for this meal and to meditate on this meal. Much like when we have communion here, we charge you the week before to prepare yourself for the Lord's table. These people needed to prepare for this. Look at verse 7. The shed blood of the lamb was to put on the top, the door frame of the house, the door, uh, the top uh, part of the door frame and the sides. And it was to signify the fact that the power of shed blood of sacrifice would protect people from death. And so the people took an action based on faith in God's power to save through sacrifice. That's what they were learning. And remember this, the door frame was for a dwelling, the connection, the door frame and the door, the door frame was the connection for a dwelling to the outside world. And it was a great way for people on the outside of the dwelling to see the sign of faith of the people on the inside of the dwelling. Do you see how that works? You know where Jesus went with that? He said this, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And men and women, that does not mean as followers of Christ, we've got to get it right all the time. You know what it means? It means as much as we get it right, we've also got to be quickly ready to admit that we get it wrong. The worst witness that Christians have in this country, and I've been a part of it so I can confess it, is self-righteousness. And it hurts our witness more than anything. When we pretend we're perfect, be perfect because your Father in heaven is perfect. We pretend that we're perfect and that we're constantly revealed as not. When in reality, what God calls us to be and to paint on our door frames are good deeds. And one of those good deeds is being a chief repenter, admitting when I'm wrong and asking for forgiveness. Even with people who are not Christians. Anybody I've wronged. And so, 
Know this, that the blood smeared on the doorframe was before the meal because, because the blood on the doorframe was more important than the meal that God gave these people to remember what he was doing. It isn't that the Passover meal wasn't important, but the blood on the doorframe was absolutely essential. Now look at verses 8 through 11. They were required to eat the meal in a way that demonstrated that they were ready to roll. They were ready to get out of the house. I don't know if you guys are like this, but man, when we pack for vacation, you know, and and we're going to leave on Tuesday, we leave on Wednesday. You know, we swear we're going to, but it just takes us forever to get out of the house. Well, the reason these guys were were, uh, told to tuck their cloaks into their belts was because they needed to be ready to go. They were to eat with their shoes on, which they normally did not do. They were to eat bitter herbs because they were quickly, uh, quick to prepare. They were to roast the meat because it took a lot longer to boil it. Unleavened bread because they didn't, weren't going to uh, wait for the bread to rise. And so what you get, what, the idea that you get here is that there's no way to predict when judgment is coming. And so you need to be ready for it. And that's absolutely critical. And the real question of this whole Passover is this. And this is a question that you and I need to think about. Were the Israelites ready to trust God's promise? Were they ready to stake their lives on him? Think about it for the Israelites. And they had prospered in Egypt and just recently gone into slavery. So they'd raised their families there. They'd built homes there. All of their friends were there. They developed their vocations there. And what God was asking them to do was to stake everything on him. Are you really ready to leave it all behind? Do you really, do you really see what that costs? Jesus put it like this. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. I want to say this very directly to those of you in the room who are not Christians. I want you to listen to me. Don't dare give yourself to anything that does not require everything that you are to have it. Your life is too valuable to waste. Jesus wants everything that you are and everything that you have. And do you know the only promise he makes is he said, and I'll give you more. It's a John 10.10 promise. I came so that they may have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. That's the promise, 10.10 life. So, as we continue on, there comes a time where every person is going to have to make a choice. And that is, do you want a safe and comfortable life? Do you want a predictable life? Or do you want a 10-10 life? That's the question that every person faces. Now, if you'll see here, this brand new life through faith in God will ultimately save us from judgment in a very specific way. Look at verses 11 through 13 as we close. This is powerful. 11 and 12. Judgment will be certain, sudden, and final. Men and women, I'm here at this pulpit today to tell you there will be a judgment day. There will be a judgment day. And that judgment day is a day, if you really understand it, every person should long for. Everything wrong will be made right. You guys, I was at a presentation 
Thursday night of a man who spent 30 years in jail, wrongfully accused of a crime, and he was finally released as it was proven that he did not commit it. He finally got justice, but endured 30 years of injustice because of, well, I won't say anymore. But on judgment day, everything that's wrong will be made right. And that's why every person should long for it. The Israelites here, I want you to see this. They had to spread blood on the doorframe. But do you understand that the Israelites were just as sinful, were just as rebellious, and were just as idolatrous as the Egyptians? And do you know how I know? Because once they get out of the land of Egypt, all they wanted was to get back there. (laughs) They all wanted to get back all the time. They saw the land of Egypt as the good old days. And read the story, you'll see. It's crazy, except it's us. And what, you, what we need to see is the Israelites and the Egyptians are really no different. They're both sinful and stubborn people. The only distinction was the distinction God was making, that was blood on the doorframe. That's the only distinction, and it's critical to see. Now, look at verse 12. God says, I will bring judgment on the gods of Egypt. What's God saying there? He's simply saying this, that false gods can't save you. The ten plagues, if you trace them closely, you can see that each plague addresses one of the gods of Egypt in particular and defeats that god. And what God is showing the Israelites and also the Egyptians, by the way, is that false gods will never, ever save you. The prophet Isaiah put it like this, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek the help of the Lord. Think about it. Rely on horses and chariots. Do you know what horses and chariots were for the ancient armies? They were the air force. They flew the air cover for the ground soldier. And if you had horses and chariots, that means that your army was going to do some serious damage. And so people put their hope in their horses. Now let me ask you a question. Do you have a stable of horses? Do you have a stable of horses? Where is your real hope? That's what God is asking us here. Because judgment is going to be certain, sudden, And final, and we need to be sober in self-examination. Look at verse 13. The Lord speaks to the people and says, The blood on the doorframe, and this is it. This is it, y'all. Follow me here. The blood will be a sign for you. In other words, when the people look up at the doorframe, they will see the blood of the lamb that they've slaughtered and they've eaten. They will see that blood, and they will know that there's a substitute whose blood will save me if it covers me. That's what they saw when they saw the doorframe and the blood on it. There's a substitute that saves. But look at verse 13 again. God passes over and says, I will see the blood and pass over you. Well, what does God see when he looks down on the doorframe? What does he see when he sees the blood on the doorframe? You know what he sees? He sees a substitute that satisfies him satisfies his wrath 
against sin. He passes over because he sees the blood that pays for sin, that satisfies judgment, his justice. And so the people are safe because God's judge, justice is satisfied. That's what he sees. And so the question is, for all of us as we think about the Passover, how can God destroy sin in us without destroying us? That's the question. How does God pass over? Who is that substitute that saves? And of course, you know what the doorframe ultimately turned into? You know, the doorframe was ultimately shaped in the shape of a cross. And on the cross, here's what you see. You see the beauty of the love of God. Because God so loved the world that he sent his son to the cross. You see the beauty of the love of the son of God because he went to the cross. You see the love of God in the cross. But do you know what else do you see? You also see the justice of God. Because when Jesus went to the cross... He went as the Lamb of God. He went as the ultimate Passover Lamb. In fact, John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, said, that's the Lamb of God. And when he went to the cross, his blood not only was an expression of his love, but it was also a satisfaction for the justice of God. And so, love and justice meet on the cross. And that's how God can be loving and God can be just. He's loving because he died on the cross. He's just because he died on the cross. That's how he can save us from our sins. Now, think about this. Love does not win over justice. Love satisfies justice. And when you come to faith in Christ, you have a whole new life based on faith in Christ. And it's because the substitute has endured what you deserve. And the substitute Jesus gives you the life that you long for. It's the 1010 life, more than we could ever ask or imagine. Let's pray. Father, thank you.